Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. This is the week we listen to a sermon. And the sermon this week is by one of the great preachers of our day, Dr. Ralph Douglas West. Dr. Ralph West is the founder and senior pastor of the Church Without Walls in Houston, Texas. He began preaching at 16 years of age right there in Houston where he was born. And this church has grown from 32 members way back when it was founded to over 24,000 members with families meeting in three different locations. God has blessed that ministry in so many ways. Dr. Ralph West holds the Doctor of Ministry degree from Beeson Divinity School. He's also a member of our Beeson Board of Advisors. Dr. Smith, give us a little insight into this sermon we're going to hear from our friend, Dr. Ralph Douglas West. Long-term debt and high interest, that is his title from Romans 1, 14 to 17. You're right, Dean George, he, he really is um, one of the most compelling voices in preaching in our time. He exemplifies what it is like to use an economy of words, preaches this message in about 21 minutes, no wasted words at word at all. He's like a forensic analyst who takes and interrogates the text and culture and then exposes to us, his hearers, his findings. The key, I think, to his preaching is that we are in essence, eavesdropping on his self-conversation in terms of how he got the sermon, and then he tells us exactly uh, what God has said to him uh, in his place of preparation. Application is woven throughout the fabric of this particular sermon and not reserved for the end. Uh, He is at his best in storytelling, but storytelling has a doctrinal foundation. So he's not just telling stories. He's telling them the meta narrative, uh, the biblical narrative of the Bible. Very eclectic. Uh, his uh, research gives us kind of like running edits at a, fi- at the end of a film. Quotes Luther, Calvin, John Wesley, Karl Barth. Uh, Fred Craddock, Rudolph Boltman that he uses in a very positive way to talk about the resurrection. Martin o- Mark Noel uh, points out very organized, so he'll come out of the narrative presentation and give us a kind of expositional development of the text through major points like an obligation, an urgency, a sufficiency, the power of God and salvation in order to uh, find scriptural rootage in his presentation. He engages uh, the audience through text and culture. That's, that is a trademark of, of Ralph West, exegeting the text and exegeting the uh, congregation. And he uses humor uh, in a, a very effective way in that he's not just simply making us laugh by saying something funny, but using humor as a way of teaching us. And finally, pay attention to his pace. He has a long way to go, but a short time to get there. And he gets there and thoroughly treats the text. Wonderful presentation, thorough examination of the text. 
Long-Term Debt at High Interest, a great sermon by Dr. Ralph D. West, preached right here at Beeson Divinity School for the installation service of Dr. Robert Smith as the Charles T. Carter Baptist Chair of Divinity back in 2015. Let's listen to Dr. Ralph West. A reading from the Epistle of St. Paul to the Romans. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The word of the Lord. Let me say publicly how delighted I am that you would count me one for this moment. It's a great joy to my heart. I was thinking, I don't know many engagements to which I've been invited that's more humbling than this to both of these families for the investments that you've made, the way that you have undergirded and prayed for your family members. Mother Smith, blessings. The scripture has been read, Romans 1, 1, 14 through 17. The Apostle Paul has given us some words almost of preaching anxiety. I am obligated, I am eager I'm not ashamed. This, for me, is a long-term debt with high interest. It's a strange intersection between the church and the writings of the letter to the Romans. At key moments and critical times in church history, the letter to the Romans have taken center stage. The pagan Augustine in Milan listening to some children sing a little song, pick up the book and read, pick it up and read. He had never heard these words to a child's song, so he thought maybe this is a voice of God commanding me too to pick up the word and read, and he did. And it opened to Romans 13, verses 14 and 15, and he read it, and he said, my heart flooded with light, and he turned away from his sin. Martin Luther in that tower working through biblical texts, Romans and Galatians, and then he comes to the Psalms, but he grapples over a word, righteousness, justification. He dismisses it, actually. Anger with God that he would use this kind of terminology. And then when he embraced it, he felt that he had been made anew and had actually been ushered into paradise. On that day when John Wesley sat reluctantly at Aldous Gate Church in that dimly lighted chapel. Earlier that day, he had been praying, Lord, help me. And that night, someone reading, just reading the prefaces to the letter, said that his heart was strangely warm, and I did trust in Christ. And who of us can forget Karl Barth, how he shook 19th century liberalism with his very writings of his commentary on Romans, of that long 14-year stretch in the Westminster Chapel where D. Martin Lloyd-Jones would preach 
week after week, month after month, year after year, until he had 14 volumes of homiletical exegesis, still used by those now who study through this writing. Romans and the church have always had an interesting intersection, and this letter is often taken center stage. None of us would deny that storytelling, narrative preaching is enjoyable. It can build a house, but doctrine must be the foundation. Here, this is what I believe I want to say to you now, that we who are called of God in the ministry of his service, that we too find ourselves in the same place as the apostle. Allow me to say just a few things about it. Here he is on the front steps of the house. He's about to let us see the theme and the thesis, the thrust of the writing in these words that we have read today. And it gives us the broad inclusiveness of that long-term debt. He simply says, I am obligated. Before he gives a definition for proclamation, he spends some time to talk about the debt that Jesus Christ had paid, placed on him. I am obligated. Often he would talk about being a debtor, that Christ had entrusted to him his word, that he would be, at one, another writing, the steward of the mysteries of God. John R. Durstadt helped shine sermonic light upon that word, the debt, the obligation, the duty and responsibility of the proclaimer. He said that there are two ways that one looks at debt. One is that you are a borrower and you owe back to the one you borrowed from. But then there's another times where you hold and entrust that has been given to you by a third party and you are under the weight of that until you deliver it to whom it belongs. It is this definition that Paul is talking about. I am obligated. It is not his gospel. It is a gospel that has been entrusted to him. And now he must pass that gospel along. It's something inescapable about that obligation. Personally, informationally, vocationally, personally. He just simply says, I am obligated. Christ had placed that obligation upon him. And so he just says that there is a personal obligation attached to all of this. But then beyond that, he says that there's an informational obligation, and that is that the gospel itself has the information that we must deliver to the people who are listening to it. Fred Craddock made this comment once, it's no wonder that our churches fill up on Easter. It's the one time people come to church and they know that they're going to hear about the resurrected Jesus Christ. It reminds me of that youth minister that was describing something small and hairy and collecting nuts and carrying it up in the trees. And he asked the youth group, he said, what is that? And one of the young students said, Jesus. And the youth pastor said, blasphemy. Found his father, the dad, reprimanded him. How could you embarrass us to say something like that? And the student said something prophetic. Dad, I knew he was talking about a squirrel, but he should have been talking about Jesus. <laughs> and I'm always amazed at the people, if they could, they would rearrange the content of preaching every Sunday morning. Yes, sir. 
It's personal, it's informational, but it's vocational. And that is God called him. I believe when Paul is writing this that there's something autobiographical about it. That somewhere he cannot get out of his mind that day on Damascus when the light of God shined in him. And later he would write about that, of how the eyes of his heart had been enlightened. And here he says, I'm under this inescapable obligation. But it's inclusive, isn't it? Look at this text. It speaks of the ethnicity of his inclusiveness. That he is to speak to the Greeks and the non-Greeks. You know, when we read that, there are times that we make it so light. That Paul just said, I'm preaching to the Greeks, the non-Greeks, or the barbarians. But that's a weighty word in that because Paul is a Jew. I mean, he's a hotshot Jew. He studied at the school of Gamaliel. He's a Hebrew, a Hebrew, a Pharisee, a Pharisee. And he is now going to the very community to speak the gospel to those that he had been taught to despise. The gravity of that would be to say that you're under an obligation as an American to take the gospel to ISIS. Just the idea of it makes some of you shrink and recoil and debate whether you'll do it or not. And yet Paul said, that is my obligation. But it moves beyond just ethnicity, but to a sagacity. He says, to the wise and to the foolish. To the learned and the unlearned. To the educated and the uneducated. The cultured and the uncouth. I am to take that gospel everywhere I go. He bridges the gap, doesn't it, between culture and intelligence. And he says, I'm under an obligation. Just a page, many of you will remember from missiology, when missionaries had gone to the Walamo tribe in Ethiopia, and they had to leave hurriedly before it fell into the hands of Nazis. And all they could leave behind was the translated book, laid it there, that's all they had. They knew post-World War II when they returned that they would find it overrun with pagans and people who they would have to start from square one all over again. To the missionaries' amazement, they came back and found a Christian culture. Not because of the missionaries, not because of a preacher, but just because of the power of the gospel. It makes a difference. Look with me now that he moves, does he not, from this broad, broad sweep of inclusiveness to draw our attention to that of its urgency. He says that there is an urgency attached to this opportunity. I'm eager to come to you. I like that. Paul is eager to come to Rome, that he wants to come to the mistress of the world, the place where people said, if I could just go visit Rome once to see the gold standard raise high, to see its naval ships in the Mediterranean, that we could see the soldiers march, to see the Senate seats, if we could go to the Colosseum, they just, I want to, that's what they said, I want to go to Rome. But Paul was saying, I don't want to visit Rome as a tourist. I want to go to Rome as an evangelist. I'm not going sightseeing. I'm, I'm going to proclaim the message of Jesus Christ. And he's eager to go there and do that. And many people 
shrank from the opportunity to go to the wrongs of their life. They shrank away from it. They would rather go as a tourist, but not as an evangelist. But Paul says, I'm eager to go to Rome. Mark Noel, the historian, wrote a few years ago a book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. And he hit hard at evangelicals on the very first line. He says, there's not much of an evangelical mind left. And then from there he moved in and he started confronting evangelicals that disengaged from the culture. Those who wanted to live almost as Christian monastics that as long as I got it, I'm on my way to heaven. And he said, no, you cannot retreat to some backwater. You have to engage the culture. I have lived to see that and hear it in my own life. In Houston, Texas, there was a preacher named Milton Cunningham. He's a blessed memory now. Dr. Cunningham was the pastor of Westbury Baptist Church. And he had been invited, as he told me in the 80s, to be a part of the development of a Christian suburb. Now, I don't know how they were going to select who moved in, but it was for Christians only. That was your passport of entry, that everybody was Christian. And I chuckled at that because this was their way, I guess, to keep sin out. (laughs) You would think that kind of thinking had dissipated, wouldn't you? Just a few years ago in the state of Florida. Another group of Christians desired to do the same thing, to have a Christian community. And I always chuckle at that because I wonder when they go to the grocery store, are they going to stand in line for justified jelly, evangelistic eggs, merciful milk? I just don't know what it is. What do you get in an all-Christian community? And there are those that shy away from the culture. And yet the Lord has called us to be countercultural. You see, this very one who said that he was under an obligation and he named it to the Greeks and the barbarians, the wise and unwise, remember those times of those hard places where he took the gospel, where he preached in Athens to a Greco-Roman mindset with the same dexterity in the culture that he could talk to the high intelligentsia and then he could speak to the common people that gathered in the Corinthian congregation. He was eager to do it. The opportunities were affordable to him. The possibilities of preaching for the gospel to reach at the center of Western culture to take the gospel to there and it ought to be an eagerness of that. I don't know who in here preaches or sings, or teachers in a Sunday school, or work with children and youth, or going to the mission, but there ought to be an eagerness about it. There ought to be something that makes you want to do it, to make you drive at it. But Paul said something that helps us understand his eagerness. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, (laughs) because we live in a culture where many of us, we are very evangelical in hearts, chapel. And not that evangelical out in the world. It's easy to be evangelical in here. It takes work to take Christ out there. 
I'm not ashamed. Why would anybody be ashamed in the first place? Some are ashamed because of the world's hostility toward God himself as he really is. And it intimidates them. You hear people up in arms about so many socio, political, and ethical issues that bombard us, and we shy away, and we forget primarily that it is an attack upon biblical, historical, orthodox Christianity. But we shy away. We're intimidated by it. And then some are ashamed because of the hostility to the gospel itself, the very content of what we preach. And so people say, I can't talk about that. It's unimpressive. It's irrelevant. It's not wise enough. And so they reduce what they say on Sunday or even in a chapel setting. They talk about how to grow hair, how to lose weight, or how to increase the running mileage. That makes no difference, does it? You and I both know that. He is eager to take the gospel. They are ashamed. They shrink back. Why? Because of the content. It is a strange word, isn't it, that we gather together in churches around the world to talk about a Lord that was nailed to a stick and bled to death and was buried in the grave and got up. And we say, with all power. And that power is not limited to the then. That power is available in the now. One final thing that he says, and I threw. He does give us some insight this morning of the broad, the broad inclusiveness of that long-term debt. And he gives us something here, does he not, about the urgency of the opportunity. It will yield high interest. But he ends it, and I'm through, with the centrality of sufficiency. He merely says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. <laughs> power. Whenever you talk about power, your mind immediately goes in certain directions. You think about power, the big bang, power. Duke astronomers tell us that from here to the edge is 14 billion light years at the speed of 186,000 miles per second. That's immense. That's big. Yet when you talk about God's power, God's power can be spoken or he can create all of what we talk about in one word. Let it be. And it is. That's power. You talk, you talk about the magnetic pull and what the sun does in the world. This morning I set my clock after a long preaching weekend and traveling yesterday to get ready for this morning. I set my clock to ring. It did. I snoozed it and then just threw it away. But there was a slit between the curtains and the sunlight broke in and gently lighted upon my face. And all of that power gently woke me up to be here today. Power, power, wonder-working power. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it's the power of God for salvation to everyone that believes. It's power, car bar, 
In his commentary said a great about these verses. He says that the gospel explodes and the church is the crater of that explosion. I like that. Power. And there's something that happens out of that power of the gospel. You can lay a physics book or an astronomy book or folio of poetry or you collection of short stories and you can lay it down on a table or you can put it in a tribe or in a community and just leave those books there. And people can read them or try to read them or look at the pictures in them. They can have an astronomy book, but it won't make them astrologer. They can have Shakespeare, but it won't make them a poet. <laughs> they can have physics, but it will not make them a scientist. But they can have the gospel and the mere reading of it can transform the human life. I wonder sometimes when I hear people who preach and sing, do they ever really sit down and read the word? Somebody asked me once, how do you get up to preach? How do you get ready to preach? And you need to hear this today because you will come to those moments where ash will light up on the altar of your heart. I tell them this is all I do. I pull aside with the living word. And I let the gospel, and so I'm not preaching a sermon to you. This is a result of my study. You are just overhearing what I've been working on. And how do I get ready? It burns in me. It gives me an obligation, an urgency, and a sufficiency. It's the power of God under salvation. I'll sit down. Let me give you one last just line here. Rudolph Boltmann. And I know some of you are saying he's a strange character to get mixed up in the writings of Romans here. <laughs> Rudolf Bowman was an interesting character. He, his mother was pietist. His father was a Protestant liberal. He did not embrace the literal historical resurrection of Jesus Christ. He debunked that. But he was an evangelist for the Christ that he did believe in. When you read his biography, it said that faculty members and colleagues and students often would saw Boltman come and they would run in another direction. They would duck into a room. They would hide behind something because they didn't want to hear him evangelize about the Christ that he believed in. A Jesus that didn't physically, literally, bodily resurrect, but he was evangelizing about the Christ of the charisma. And I read that and it always astonishes me. Here bought money and doesn't believe in the bodily resurrection, fundamental to our faith, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't believe it like that. And yet he evangelized people to believe in the Christ that he did believe in. And I said, if this man can be that urgent and obligated, if he can be that passionate about a Christ that he didn't believe got up on a Sunday morning, what more should we who claim that our glory belongs to God and we put our hope and trust in him. And so I finish now by simply saying one word, preach the gospel. That's what we have come here. This chair is simply to remind us that the one to whom the chair is named and the one that will occupy the chair, they are proclaimers of the gospel. That's all it says to us, the gospel. Don't defend it, preach it. <laughs> Uh, the gospel. Don't dilute it. Preach it. The gospel. Don't confuse it. Preach it. The gospel. Don't doubt it. Preach it. The gospel. Don't mumble it. Preach it. 
the gospel. Don't substitute it. Preach it. The gospel. Don't change it. Just stand by it. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.